1: Yes, welcome to Diffusion, your weekly dose of science gossip. We've got lots coming up in today's show. Mark's looking at science and what role they're playing in the Cricket World Cup this year. And if you'd ever thought that maybe you'd come up with an invention or you'd discovered something and you thought, wow, this is really cool, this is going to get me straight to the Nobels, and then you turned around and found that, hey, somebody's beat you to the chase, well, Tilly Boleyn's got a great story and she can sympathise with you there. I'm Jackie Perfer, We've got lots coming up in today's show, but first let's check out the science news with Catherine Beehag.
0: Would you want something called a vomit fruit sitting in your fruit basket? The aptly named vomit fruit repulses most. Well, except for a certain species of fruit fly. The vomit fruit grows on the Tahitian noni scrub commonly found in Polynesia, Asia, and tropical North Australia. With a ripe smell derived from hexanoic and octanoic acid, it repels most flies and kills those that land on it, with the exception of the fr- fruit fly Dressophilia cecestia. According to ABC Science Online... Researchers at the Tokyo Metropolitan University have found that the fly's genes play a big role in not only why it can tolerate the vol- vomit fruit, but will eat it and use it as a nursery for its eggs. Drosophilia sechellia has two olfactory genes, which differ from other species of fruit fly. The two genes make the repulsive fruit attractive. The researchers who have had their work published in the journal PLOS Biology hope that this may now lead to a better understanding of the habits of insects and how to manipulate insects, such as mosquitoes, who are attracted to human blood. Migraines create searing pains for their sufferers, sometimes sending their victim to bed for hours. But according to news at Nature, a new study has shown that migraine sufferers might keep their cognitive functions for longer than non-sufferers. In the past, studies have suggested migraine sufferers have worse memories than those who are migraine-free. However, a new study published in Neurology has shown that they may not lose their cognitive functions as quickly. The study, which was led by Amanda Kalajian from the National Institute of Mental Health in Bethesda, Maryland, sent nearly 1,500 people, 200 of whom did suffer migraines, through a series of word, recall and cognitive tests. They found that while non-sufferers do perform better on memory tests, their cognitive functions deteriorate a lot faster than those who deal with migraines. With the cause of migraines still unknown, the researchers still don't know why migraine sufferers lose their cognitive function at a slower rate. Last Monday, the very first three-dimensional images of the sun were released, courtesy of a pair of satellites orbiting Earth. The twin solid terrestrial relations observatory satellites or, as they are known, stereo satellites, were launched last October. To allow them to capture 3D images, though, one has been positioned in front and one behind Earth. Offsetting the two satellites works like our eyes do in creating depth perception to see objects as three-dimensional. The 3D photos will hopefully allow scientists to predict dangerous solar storms which can disrupt satellites space missions, and even airline flights. It is also hoped that the photos will help estimate when these storms will arrive and how severe they will be. For any keen viewer, the photos which are on NASA's website and can be viewed in 3D using your own pair of 3D glasses, or NASA can also give you the instructions on how to build your own pair.
1: checking out all of the action in the Cricket World Cup, you might have noticed well, it's not just the cricketers who are stepping up to the pitch. Science has actually been playing a big part too and Mark West brings us more.
2: With the Cricket World Cup in the headlines, as you say, Jackie, I thought it was about time we did a story on some of the interesting scientific aspects of cricket that have arisen recently. And a question that I'm always asked being a cricket player is, are cricketers really actually all that fit? Having watched the likes of David Boone, Darren Lehman and Ian Botham, all Portly fellows, strut the international cricket stage with distinction, you might believe that you really do not need to be actually that fit to play cricket. Don't you just stand around in the outfield avoiding the ball for most of the day? Studies conducted by Dr Rob Duffield at the School of Human Movement at Charles Sturt University have found that indeed you really do not need to be as physically fit to play cricket as you do other sports, such as football. Dr Duffield and Dr Mark Portis, the Sports Science Manager of Cricket Australia, have studied the effects of international cricket on the body. During a test century, which takes on average three and a half hours of batting, a batsman will stand still for two hours, Walk for an hour, jog for 10 minutes, spend only 5 minutes running hard and about a minute and a half sprinting. It seems that the key to being a good cricketer is lots of net practice to keep the skill base high, the ability to tackle the psychological aspects of the game and plenty of natural talent. Physical conditioning and muscle training is not going to necessarily improve your performance in cricket, Dr Duffield said. Having a high oxygen consumption or a faster 20-metre sprint time doesn't mean you are going to be able to bowl better or get more wickets or score a century. This does not mean, however, that you can be completely unfit and compete at the highest level. It seems the fitter you are, the less likely you are to succumb to injury and the quicker you recover from fatigue. This helps maintain performance throughout a long day's play or over a five-day test match. In other news about this sadly neglected interaction between science and cricket, Barbados recently hosted the Third World Congress of Science and Medicine in Cricket, and this has to be a science-slash-cricket nerds-like-myself dream. The aims of the Congress were to, one, provide a state-of-the-art review of the basic, applied and clinical sciences as they relate to cricket and the impact of cricket on society, Two, to provide a forum for integrating knowledge from the contributing sciences which address key areas in the prevention and management of cricket injuries and the enhancement of performance. Three, to identify those areas where our scientific understanding is incomplete and to encourage discussions of the challenges that face all involved in the advancement of the game of cricket. And four, to provide a forum for the dissemination of scientific information relating to cricket. The Congress attracted doctors, coaches, therapists, psychologists and sports trainers who all shared information regarding the fitness and ability of cricketers. Dr Llewellyn Harper, one of three doctors on the medical board of the West Indies Cricket Board, stated that the West Indies team had become very fit over the last decade, however had suffered because, in general, fitness was not given the recognition it deserved. The West Indies are definitely a better team in terms of physical fitness, he said. What the players need to do now is take ownership of the regimes that we have put in place so that the level of preparation can be maintained. They are interested in making their careers longer, so they are aware of what they have to do and how often they have to do it. And to finish up, here is a statistical oddity for all you science and cricket nerds out there. And again, I mean this as a compliment because clearly I am one of them. This comes from an article by Andrew Miller on the cricket website Crickinfo. Prior to the start of the Australia vs Sri Lanka game on April 16. The one-day international statistics for Australian fast bowler Sean Tate had a rather unusual bent to them. They were a computer geek's dream. Everything was in binary. Matches played, 11. Innings, 1. Not outs, 0. Runs, 11. High score, 11. Average, 11.00. Balls faced, 10. Strike rate, 110.00. Hundreds, 0. Fifties, 0. Fours, 1. Sixes, 1. Catches, 1. Stumpings, nil. So there you go. The guys over at Cricket Info clearly have too much... Time on their hands. But if you are interested, this binary number, which is one is equal to 31,430,158 in normal decimal.
1: So Mark, as as a nerd, do you think nerds make better cricket players knowing those binary
2: numbers? I think they do. You've got to think about something if you're standing in the outfield for five days in a row. <laughs> very true, very true.
1: Now here we go, dropping science, dropping it all over. Like bumping around the town, like when you're driving a Range
2: Rover. Been dropping the new science, and I have be kicking the new knowledge. And I to a degree that you can't get in college. It's the sound of science.
1: Now, coming up on Diffusion, Tilly explores those moments when you think that you might have come up with the next biggest moment in science until somebody beat you to the chase. You are listening to Diffusion.
3: Friend, you want us to get along, please do not expect me to, wrap it up and keep it there, the observation I'm doing could easily be understood, a cynical demeanor, but one of us misread, what do you know, it happened again. Friend is not a means you have to get somewhere. Somehow, did notice. Friendship is an end. What do you know? Are was standing in front I guess it's up to me now Should I take that risk or just smile? What do you know it about?
1: read Kings of Convenience on Diffusion. Now, Tilly Boleyn, she's going to take us on her personal journey to scientific fame and glory. Tilly.
4: Thank you, Jackie. Well, before I was a microbiologist and long before I was a science communicator extraordinaire, I thought I was a zoologist. It was when I was about eight and we were on holiday up the coast on the east coast of Australia and I saw a bird and I was absolutely certain that I had discovered a new species of bird. I was so excited. I sneaked inside and borrowed my father's camera and took an entire roll of film, not digital, back in the oldie days, that was real film and took an entire roll of film and I was just sitting there pondering whether I could call it after myself, a Tillyhawk, for example, uh, or whether I had to call it after the place where I found it when my father came out and gently told me that it was actually a common top-notch pigeon. You know those ones with the cute little... It looks like they're wearing a little hat. Anyway, I'd never seen one and I was sure I was the inventor. So I thought I couldn't be the only person that's wandered through history thinking that they'd been the first person to invent something. So I went out on the streets and spoke to some of my friends and strangers about if the same sort of thing had happened to them.
3: So it began in Miss Cropsey's class, elementary school. Uh, we were learning about the cones and the rods in our eyes and how they pick up various colours. But dogs and cats, they don't have a certain... One of those, whichever one picks up color, and individual people, their cones and rods are quite different. I was sure at the time that I had made the discovery that we, in fact, all share the same favorite color. It's just that our rods and our cones are arranged in such a way that when we're learning about colors, what I see as green, all the other kids might see as yellow or orange or red, but, in fact, when we all select our favourite colour, we're really seeing the same colour. We're just not, uh, we're not aware that we've mislabeled them so early on.
2: Well, when I was about six, I was certain that I'd perfected the theory of fairies. For example, I remember trying to convince my mother that that flicker of light you saw out of the corner of your eye, that was a fairy. Possibly spontaneously combusting, as they do. If you're walking along and you get what feels like a tiny stone in your shoe that's very uncomfortable, you shake it about. That's a lazy fairy trying for a free ride. I remember being quite convinced myself and, uh, yes, quite embarrassed looking back on it.
0: Well, I'm not quite sure that this is in the same category as everyone else's, but when I was a young child... I was definitely going to grow up and be the queen of my own queendom, if you will. And in my queendom, uh, alcohol would not be allowed. There would be no alcohol for anyone to consume or make or anything. And then when I grew up, I realised Islam existed.
2: I've got I've got two uh, mathematical ones. They're not quite as cool as the last ones. I can remember in a, a physics exam in, I think, first year or something like that, um, I spent the first about hour of the exam and about six pages deriving some magnificent formula, and I spent pretty much the entire exam deriving it for some reason until I realized that it was given to me on the front. So I thought I was the world's best physicist there for a little while until I realized I was given it. Um, I also thought in year nine that I'd proved Pythagoras wrong, but uh, apparently I was also incorrect there.
0: Back when I was about six years old, I discovered the ultimate way to get back at my parents after being scolded, and that was to run away from home. And I made it as far as the main road, which was all of about 200 metres away from my house. And I remember as I gave up and walked back home, I thought that this was... Not a bad idea, and I'll make it work next time. And I was positive that no one else would have thought of it, but the next day at school I found out I was wrong. When I I worked out that that Santa Claus wasn't true and there was a conspiracy of adults to tell us that Santa Claus was true when the evidence was all against it, and I had to convince people that I didn't know why the adults were covering it up and why they were putting fake Santa Clauses in all the supermarkets and and shopping centres but they were up to something, and I was five. The other one is, and I thought he invented it, I thought my dad was a bit of a genius, how you get the, um, get your hose and you put the top of it into the bath and obviously it's not on, and you suck the water from the bath into the garden. So it's being environmental as well as thinking that your father is a genius all encapsulated into one. So that was a pretty good one. I
3: am a scientist Yeah, I am a scientist
1: You ever thought that you'd discovered something or that you'd invented something just to find out that no, in fact that's existed for a good couple of years now or a good couple of hundred years Well we want to know your answers and, and we'd love to hear your stories. If you write to us at diffusion at 2ser.com and share us your stories, we'll be picking the best answers and sending you some cool sciencey goodies <laughs>
3: It's a scientific fact
1: A
2: scientific fact
3: It has to be correct
2: It has to be exact Because it is, because it is a scientific fact It's a scientific fact that our high and low tides are caused by the gravitational pull of the moon it's been proven to be true Like one and one are two It's checked and double checked A fact that can be backed Because it is, because it is a scientific
1: For joining us on Diffusion. Contributing this week was Mark West, Catherine Behag, and Tilly Boleyn, who is also sitting in our producer's chair today. Diffusion is produced at the 2SER Studios in Sydney and we're broadcast across Australia via the Community Broadcasting Network. You can also come and check out our website, which is diffusionradio.com. I'm Jackie Peffer, and we'll see you next time for all of the science that you can poke a stick at on Diffusion.